Hey, so we are into this new year, uh, 2020. We are into a new decade, and it was really interesting. I was telling our group of praise on Tuesday morning as we were um, as we were praying for Tatum and Jacob uh, last week, and uh, I think it was actually in this service. I, I think we, I'm not sure if we prayed for. No, they, they prayed for us in the second service. But I was praying. I, you know, I was just praying for this new year, and I had this idea like this 2020 stepping into the year 2020. But also, just as we were praying, I felt like God was speaking and saying, "Man, 2020 is also connected to vision, right? You have a 2020 vision." And when I felt like God was just speaking, and we're going to kind of dive into this a little bit this morning and uh, the upcoming weeks. But as we talk about 2020 vision, you all know what that means. Some of you have never had it since you were like five years old, right? But it's like you desire to have 2020 vision, this idea that I can see clearly with direction of which I'm going. I may not see exactly what's at the end of where I'm going, right? But I have 2020 vision. I'm able to see what God is doing. I have vision of like what he's doing in my life and around me. Uh, I have 2020 vision of like clearly seeing Jesus. And when I felt like God was speaking in the season, this, this is the work that he wants to do in each of our lives. Don't think about this, the vision. Like he, he won. He wants to give you vision to see him, right? That you're, that it's clear that you're able to see Jesus. 2020 vision in the sense of direction, what he's calling you to in, in life. And then 2020 vision of like, God, what are, what are your dreams? What are the things that are on your heart? And what are the things that you were doing? And so I want to encourage you in this season. Uh, to be a people who really are are seeking those things, the idea of vision holistically, that you're a people, that we are a people, that you're a person who really is going after the heart of God. That's really what it boils down to, right? That you're giving yourself to saying, God, if it's 2020 vision, the ability to see you, to follow you, then, Lord, I want to grab, grab hold of that and I want to do that. And so this morning, my question that I want to start off with, and it's a question that really focuses honestly just around this new year and this call to what God has in our life, is simply this. What is Jesus saying about your next year with him? Like, what is Jesus saying about your next year with him? Like, I don't put pressure behind this. This isn't condemning, right? But it's more of like, God, I, I, I want to follow. God, I want to be a part of the things that you are doing. This is the time of year, and some of you do this naturally, but this is the time of year people look back to last year. We prayed into that, right? We look forward to our, our next steps. We talk about ways to better ourselves, right? The weight that we want to lose, the relationships we want to invest into, the business we want to go after, right? It's a season of evaluation, like looking at our lives, looking back, looking forward. And this, honestly, it's good. And and it's it's right. We know from scriptures, without vision, people perish. And this is the idea primarily of seeing God. But but there's this idea that vision is super important. If I if I'm not if I'm not intentionally looking in the direction I'm going, I can go anywhere, right? But there's this idea of like being a people who have a clear direction of where we're going, and it's good and it's right. This morning, I simply want to remind you and lead you to the most important conversation that you need to have in this season, a conversation with the one who knows you best, who loves you the most, and has very clear plans and directions for your life. So I'll restate the question on the screen. What is Jesus saying about your next year with him? And that should excite you because there are thoughts around this for God. Right? 
But there are there are thoughts around this. There are there's a like there's a there's a clarity you could say in the heart of God of what He's doing. He may not share everything with you, right? He may just share different bits and pieces of it and kind of say, "Hey, this is the general direction," and I'll kind of share some things as you go. But here's the direction: walk in it, right? That there are heartbeat, the heartbeat of God for your life, callings on your life, and there's a, a vision for God. And so again, what is Jesus saying about your next year with him? With this in mind, I'm going to take a moment and share a few specifics with you about 2020 that I believe that God is leading me to individually uh, as a pastor, a leader, a husband, and a father, right? In upcoming weeks, I will share more about direction of the church and stuff, but I, I want to begin by focusing Honestly, just on our own individual life, like God, you're calling us somewhere, but gotta be, I know for me, it begins with me. I have responsibility for me. Like, I think we recognize, like, you can't be responsible for my vision. I don't really want you telling me what God's vision is for my life, right? I want to hear from the Lord just as you have a responsibility to hear for yourself what God's vision is for your life. But I'm going to share just four of these things this year that I believe that God is leading me to. My, my wife hasn't even heard these, so I apologize, babe. But, um, but she gets to hear them now with y'all, so it's going to be super exciting, and one that involves her, so she'll be super excited. Uh, but in this, I want, to, I, got, I want to look at these things. And we're just like, oh my gosh, what's he going to say? It's going to be really exposing, babe. So anyway, no. But in the context of this, I'm going to share with you some of my own things. And then we're going to talk about the things and the warnings of Scripture that honestly keep us from fulfilling the call that God has on our life. I'm going to look at 1 John chapter 2 and look at the warnings that John gives to the body of Christ. I'm not going to go there quite yet. But I want to just, but I want to, but I want you to see the things that John's going to name, these obstacles and the opposition that we face and fulfilling the vision that God has for us. And then we're going to look at the life of Daniel, I mean, just very shortly, just very shortly. And look at this, I'm going to just pull out two things from his life that I think are imperative for us in this season. Like God has this huge part that he's done. He's done the primary work for us to, to make a way for us to walk into the vision that he has. But there are areas that we have to... Uh, partner with him, things that we have to do in the process. So so let's begin with these things. Uh, this is not exhaustive. I'm just going to name four of the list that I have. There's many more, but these are the things that I feel like God's been speaking into in the context uh, of my own personal life. I'm sharing them with you for another reason. I would just like to, you to know, but two, to kind of give you an idea of how God's speaking to me and maybe how he wants to speak to you. So number one is this, grow in honoring Randall better in our leadership together, right? That's a really, really huge statement, but grow in honoring Randall better in our leadership together. It's like the idea of like Randall, I've been leading together for 18 years in the context of ministry. I don't know this or not, but like working with your spouse is hard. Doing ministry with your spouse is hard. And in the context, I'm just being super transparent. I'm really be uncomfortable with this. But like in the 18 years, there are things that I've done that have dishonored my wife. Things that I've done in ignorance. I've just been a bad husband in some ways in the context of how I have partnered with her and the way that God has called us to lead together. And there's a conviction on my heart for this year, that in this decade, that I've just, like I have to kill it by God's grace and his power. I've got to invest myself into a better job of that. Number two, my Enneagram two, if you do Enneagram personality test, it tells me I naturally, listen, these are a little bit exposing, so I'm, I'm okay with that, okay, I'm okay with that, just so you know. Number two, my Enneagram two, two tells me I naturally function from a wound of rejection. 
Right. So if I look back at my life, I look at my own personal story. I naturally function from a wound of rejection. Like I spoke about a couple of weeks ago. I'll be honest with you. God's in a massive work in this area. I go back to what I, before I came here. So 11, 12 to 13 years ago. So the past 13 years, like I've been doing a lot with the Lord, Lord's strength, but a lot of heavy lifting uh, in this area, in the area of rejection. But there are still areas, I'm sure, that you have them too. There's still areas and still pockets of brokenness in me that he wants to work on this year. I literally found myself uh, just a, a few days ago, I was praying this prayer. I was coming to the Lord about being honest about where I was and what I was feeling in the moment in my relationship with him. And, and I, to be, this is like super transparent, so I hope this is okay with you. But like I was sitting there going, God, I know that you love me. I know that you're for me. And I know here that I'm quote unquote your favorite as we are all God's favorite. But God, I still feel like I'm outside of where you are. Right. Like I feel like there I feel if I'm honest, Lord, I feel like I'm outside of where you are. Since it's like it, it kind of a can this connected to the sense of rejection of God choosing others before me, accepting others more than me. Right. But I'm like, God, this is not true. So I began to pray this prayer. God, I breathe in your acceptance and I breathe out rejection. Like I literally sat in the stillness of my time with the father just quietly before the Lord. Literally, like it was a breathing, it was a breathing prayer. Have you ever done that before? Like, like I breathe in, I can't breathe right now, it's terrible. So I'm gonna breathe, I'll start coughing. I'm breathing in, I was gonna practice for it, but I can't. I'm gonna breathe in your acceptance. And as I do that, just allow God's truth of that acceptance to, to speak over me and to speak truth over me and, and to, and like in that, and God, I just breathe out the lies of rejection. Like it was powerful. I sat there for I don't know how long, but just praying. Get Randall the bed. <clears throat> just praying that. God, I just breathe in your acceptance. You're so for me. God, you're not against me in the slightest. How, do, how come I live as if I'm a second rate son of yours? God, I'm a first rate. You love me, right? I didn't cry when I practiced this. <clears throat> <clears throat> Excuse me. Number three, God is leading me this year to live from an unhurried place, right? Dallas Willard's famous quote, Scott will tell it to you, right? What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the secret? I didn't put this, I just, I didn't put this on the screen. I have, what's the secret of a healthy, growing spiritual life? Living, listen, the, the, the ruthless elimination of hurry. What's the secret to an effective spiritual life? The ruthless elimination of hurry. John Ortberg looked at him and said, what else is there? He goes, there's nothing. If you do this, then everything else will follow in suit because you're not so hurried that you miss God. You make time for him. Listen, I know, listen, I can be busy in life, but remain unhurried. Like in the context, like we have lots of things that we need to do and things we need to accomplish. But, but in my life, I know when I am hurried, I am more like Martha living frustrated and anxious about many things rather than Mary who just sits at the feet of the Father in my unhurriedness and trusting that God can take care of everything else. I live hurried because I don't trust Jesus with everything in my life. Right? 
I live hurried because I don't trust Jesus to take care of all of these things because I trust myself more than I trust him. And so in this, I need to live unhurried. Listen, when I live hurried, there's a never-ending, just like an underlying current of anxiety that clouds my vision, causes me to rely on my own strength, and keeps God's shalom or his peace from being my reality. So I'm fighting for him, giving myself to living unhurried. Number four, areas of sin and broken thought patterns like God's saying, they will continue to diminish in power in this decade as I live in a place of rest and peace, right? Choosing to live with Jesus. And this is like language for me, so I'm going to try to do my best to unpack it. But like, like living with Jesus rather than coming to Jesus, right? Living with Jesus rather than coming to Jesus. So I was in my prayer time, and I, and I, and I just saw very clearly Two paths, right? I saw one path was on my right. So just get a picture of this on my right. And I'm kind of standing over it looking down, right? And in my mind, it was like a path up in the mountains, okay? So it's a path up in the mountains and it's just super straight. And I saw a path over here and this path over here, it went, it wound like this. And so sometimes it would come close to the other pass, and sometimes it would go far away, and sometimes it would come back, sometimes it would go far away. And I'm like looking at that going, God, what are these two paths? And he said, the path on the right is me, Steve, and the path on the left is you. Sometimes you live your life far from me, it seems like, and then you kind of just wind near to me, and then you come back over here. But I'm just letting you know there's really just one path, and we can be on it together, and it's right here. So the idea of not just, I'm not just going to come, but I'm going to live my life every day in the context of doing life with him. And I'm so unhurried that I'm living my life listening to him, following him, keeping in, just keeping up to, in step with him, enjoying his presence, and not feeling I'm coming and going, but living in his presence, right? And I recognize, like, this is a conviction of everyday life, and this is what God's calling me to. But I, I see this as something I'm giving myself to this year and giving myself to the next decade. Right, and by the end of that decade, hopefully I'm a completely different person in a good way, right? And so those are the things that I feel like God is speaking into right now, okay? So I ask the question again from the very, very beginning, what does Jesus sing about your next year with him? Right, like you listen to those and you go, I have a feeling, at least one of them maybe, you're like, that sounds great, right? Man, if Steve really does that, if I could do something like that, that'd be really, really cool. If that's God's vision for Steve this year, He'll be a different person, right? That's super exciting. I'm really, and I'm sure you're really glad <coughs> that God spoke those things over me because you recognize those are healthy. So again, you're excited for me and what God is speaking, but I wonder if you've taken time to say, hey, Jesus, what are you doing this year? Not with guilt going, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible person. I'm already like six days, five days in. I haven't done this yet. It's okay. Right? It's okay. You got hurried. Let's just not be hurried for a, for, for a good, a good long minute. And just let him speak into those places. And then if you're afraid he won't speak, well, doesn't that speak volumes about where you need to be giving yourself to in your relationship with Jesus? Because I know people who don't go talk to Jesus because they're going to feel this fear of rejection that he won't say anything. So they listen to other people, like saying, hey, what do you think I should do? They're leaning on someone else's spiritual life. That's just not great. Right? That's not their responsibility. It's yours, but there's this beautiful piece of like, maybe you need to come in and say, God, I'm going to breathe in your acceptance for the next 30 minutes and breathe out rejection, but I really don't believe you're going to speak to me, but I know here that you want to, but I'm not living it out. So God, I'm going to just take 30 minutes and do nothing but breathe in your love and acceptance for me and breathe out this lie of the enemy that says I'm not loved by you and I'm rejected by you. I like, guess what I had to do. 
So I just invite you to do it too. It's actually fun. You feel, kind of feel weird breathing sometimes, but it's still good for the most part. Right, so in this thing, there are lots, there are other things on my list. Like there are other things on my list. These are just four of them. You feel, feel free to ask me about them in the upcoming months. But I recognize, like, uh, like all of us, that there are obstacles. There are obstacles in life that would want to keep me from fulfilling this vision. Right? Like it's one thing to know the path to go. It's another thing to actually get on it and walk it. Right? So when I get here in the beginning of the year, like how many of you make New Year's resolutions and like when a weekend, you're like, ah, I've already failed, right? It's like I had good intentions. I knew the path I wanted to go on. And so this morning, I want to talk about some of these obstacles of living the life that God has for me. I want to, again, look at the warnings of John. I want to look at the, the life of Daniel. These are not going to be exhaustive this morning. I'm not going to do a great job this morning of diving into specifics of what all of this means for you. But I am going to trust that you will take these warnings, kind them in a general sense and then take them to Jesus to ask him about them in your life. He is good enough and loving enough to be honest with you about those areas. So what I'm doing is saying it's not my responsibility to give you all the specifics. I'm putting that on you to have your own conversation with Jesus. Okay, so let's dive into this. First, John chapter two, starting in verse 15, going to verse 17. I want you to see these as warnings of John in the culture in which we live. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. One of the great battles that we face today is the power of culture to pull us away from Jesus and cause us to lose vitality and our spiritual life. Because the world in which we live, the society in which we live, the culture that we're a part of, we all know, it's just broken. Right? So in this language here, Paul, excuse me, John literally is saying, like, the love of the world will keep us, as we give ourselves to it, will literally keep the will of God from happening in our life. As we give our things, we give ourselves to the things of this world and a love for the world, it literally keeps God's will from happening in the context of life. We all understand this, right? John's just coming to those that he loves and giving them a warning about the world in which they live, the society and culture in which they live. This morning, I wanted to share some words that were written about a people who saw the brokenness and the ills of culture and recognized it and tried to do something about it. I'm going to read this, this quote about them, and I'm going to talk about it. It says this, Society. Society was regarded by them, this people, as a shipwreck from which each single individual man had to swim for his life. So just read that one sentence. Just look at the sentence again. Just make sure you understand. It's society for them was regarded as a shipwreck from which every single individual human being really had to swim for his or her life. These men, these women were believed, excuse me, these were men who believed that to let oneself drift along, passively accepting the tenets and values of what they knew as society was purely and simply a disaster. 
They knew they were helpless to do any good for others as long as they floundered about, again, in the wreckage of the culture in which they lived. But once they got a foothold on sullen ground, things were different. They had not only the power, but, but me, they had not only the power, but even the obligation to pull the world to safety after them. Like when you read that, it fits our culture, right? You, you could write something like this, but would it surprise you to know that this is describing the desert fathers of the mid-300s? This is a couple hundred years after, after the Apostle Paul has passed away, right? The church really is still in its foundational place, right? It's still in the formation. You still have, after that, some church fathers that come along and massively shape who we are. But in the early, since the mid-300s, the, the church, those who were convicted in their life about who Jesus is, are already recognizing the dangers and the ills of the culture and the society in which they live, right? Just doing a list of quick, like, this literally one-paragraph history, like, in this season, this is the season when Emperor Constantine has come into power, right? And the Emperor Constantine comes into power, and all of a sudden, for the first time in the history of the world, Christianity is legitimized as an actual religion, in fact, it, in this season, it becomes the religion of the empire, the Roman Empire, and now to be born means that you were now born into Christianity. And you're like, that sounds really, really great, except that it wasn't. It wasn't, because to be a Christian, it was easy. It was culturally acceptable, and it no longer required obvious sacrifice. These men and women feared that Christianity had become watered down and ineffective. As one person said, they discerned how easy it was to lose one's soul in the entanglements and the manipulations found in society. Like talking about living easy Christianity, like up until this point, Christians lived in fear of losing their life. To be a Christian meant that they were going to have to forfeit and lose everything because they couldn't worship these gods and be a part of the, 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 the family over here if they denied all of those things to follow Jesus because he was the only way and you could only worship him as God, right? No other idols before him. So in this season, they had lost their vitality. Like, I don't know about you, but it's not rocket science to recognize this is what Christianity looks like in our culture. It does, right? We think of opposition, and I'm not sure that you can really determine what that means for your Christian life. Like, I say, hey, are you experiencing opposition? You're like, ah, not like this, but like more internally, right? It's just super hard to be a Christian today, right? There's so many things going on. But they're recognizing, my gosh, there is this watered-down nature of who we are. So we have to recognize that in every culture, every area of society throughout history, Christianity has its own opposition, whether it's the fear of our life or the opposition of having too much comfort and too much ease in our Christian walk. 
Obviously, too much comfort and too much ease represents the opposition and the ills of the Christian church today. And so in this, we have, in the ideas, like we have been defined by our culture and by our societies. We have to recognize that John speaks into this, speaks into this culture in 1 John 2, and he succinctly shares a timeless warning We need to be aware of today because his warning are the things that keep us from fulfilling this vision that God has for us for 2020 and for the next decade. So in this, John warns about loving the world. This is a great battle for us. Love here is not speaking about the agape that we talked we talked about that named we named a few weeks ago, but instead it speaks to seduction. It speaks to seduction. Right. That evil desire that causes us to be drawn to something or someone that we know is forbidden. Right. Eve had a desire to know. Right. To to, to know the knowledge of good and evil. What this fruit was, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She she was drawn by the seduction, this love of wanting to have knowledge of what this thing was. Right. All of us understand seduction. We all understand these things that we're drawn to, right? That we're something or someone that we know that is forbidden. The world represents the godless, and we're talking about here the love of the world, represents the godless things of the world, what we would call the seedy underbelly, where the enemy lurks and moves and lives and lives with enmity towards God, right? And those whom God loves. It's this underbelly of our cultures, these things that we know that are opposed to God. And here in John's, and here in John's writing, the traits that, that pull us away from God's best in our lives are the things that cause us to lose vitality in our spiritual life. Like he's naming these things that just suck life from us. Look at these three basic things. Let me just say again, I'm not going to do a great job of representing what all of these could be in your life, right? It's going to be a super long list of things, and I, I, I would, maybe I should have done that, but I, I'm going to encourage you to go take each of these and pray into them yourself. The first thing that he names is the lust of the flesh. Hey, this is a thing in our culture and our society that has become a norm and is keeping us from living a vital Christian life. So we have to be a we, John's warning us of it, right? The broad category it speaks to the unhealthy, selfish, self-oriented life. Like I can't, like I always think about this in this way, and just give me grace. This isn't a perfect example, but I'm always like, when I drive by something. I drive by a wreck, and the first thing that I think is, oh, my gosh, I'm glad that wasn't me, versus, oh, my gosh, God, I hope this person's okay. Oh, my gosh, I'm glad the tornado didn't hit my house, right? But rather than saying, God, I'm so sorry hit this person's house. By nature, we are self-oriented, self-preservation type people. And if you've ever read the Gospels, you know that Jesus left perfection to come to a broken world to express what selfless living looks like to the point of dying on a cross. And so the idea is in our culture, we're taught the lust of the flesh, right? And un- a selfish, self-oriented life, right? It's that part of the fallen where we make much of our needs, make much of our longings. We don't naturally think of others first. It's that part of the world we become egocentric, where we exploit others for our own personal gain. It's the root of racism. 
It's the root of sexism. It's the root of forgetting and despising the poor. It's that part of neglecting the weak and the helpless because we're just too concerned about making sure that I'm okay and my people and my circle are okay. It is also the source of materialism where we are never satisfied with what we have and we just always want more. It's that part of us that focus first on what I feel and what I want instead of asking God what he thinks and what he wants. Like you see it in, listen, I was watching the show the other night and I'm like, and, I just, and, I, and, and it came up and this person was talking about, you know, taking this step in this relationship with this person. And the mom in the story goes, okay, but what do you feel? Right? Do you love him? Like, That's the dumbest thing ever. Right? We, can, we should never ask this question as followers of Jesus. We should always ask in this, what do you feel like God is saying? Right? What do you believe God is leading you to in this moment? What is your conviction of God's spirit in your heart? But we've been defined by our culture. Like, well, you feel it, so let's do it. Do you know where feelings have gotten in our culture? Oh, do you love him? Oh, it's all about, oh, it's okay. Just, as long as you're, whatever, as long as you love. Love this, ah, right? Lust of the eyes. It does refer to sexual lust of the eyes, but it also means anything that entices us with the eyes. And you could, like it's a, and it's a, listen, you could never exhaust this list of things that you could write down for the lust of the eyes. It could be anything with a person, a car, or a house, anything that you can literally see with the visible eye. And we know this is struggles at an all-time high because of social media. This week, listen, I was watching people like Mike Thurman who were on these incredible trips, and I told him, I said, I hate you, right? I wrote him that. Now, he was sitting all love, right? But here he is, snow skiing with freshly fallen snow, and I'm sitting here with sinus congestion, dying on my own couch with nothing to do, right? And I'm like, ah, oh, social media. I mean, you've tempted me again. I hate you, right? Now, we had a back and forth. It was funny, right? But you know what I'm getting at? Like on social media every day, you see someone, they're wearing a new pair of shoes, right? You see a vacation that a person is on. You see the fun that someone is having, a party that they're going to that you weren't invited to. And what do you feel? By the lust of your eyes and what you see in front of you, you feel jealous, you feel angry, you feel all of a sudden dissatisfied with what you have, and maybe you feel rejection. And all of that fruit is the lust of your eyes of not being satisfied with where you are and what you have with Jesus being enough. <clears throat> Water break, everybody go ahead. I've got to pray I can talk at the next service, man. All right. I got you, buddy. We'll just press replay on this. Make sure you record them, man. All right. <laughs> the eyes are powerful, aren't they? Like, did I just, did I, like, strike a chord from this week? I mean, my girls, God love them. I, I'm like, don't get on social media on Christmas Day. Because all you're going to see is what you didn't get for Christmas. Number three, pride of life. This speaks to a person's 
arrogance, their continual promotion of self. It speaks to a person's reputation, right? Their public image that matters more, matters more to them than what God thinks of them and God's image of them. This person always tells you how important they are, who they know, how much power they have, how much money they make, what type of car they drive, you know, the type they live to make themselves look more important, to look smarter, to look more attractive and more powerful than anyone and everything that they do. And we're all like this, right? At work. Oh, I'm going to, yeah, the boss, is, he's called me in for a special meeting. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you about it when I get back, right? It's like, I want to make sure that you know what I know, that I'm super important. We have to listen and heed the warning of John. As you step into this year, as you step into this decade, I mean, you've got to be honest and recognize that godless part of our culture is always working to draw you away in all the seasons of your life. And one of these are usually all three of these different areas. You've already come face to face with all three of these in the last five days of the first five days of the year. John's warning, it's timeless and we must be aware. We must be aware. Hear this. It's inevitable that you will be confronted with these, but it is not inevitable that we will fall into their trap. You don't have to. How many of you know you have the power of God's Spirit in your life that convicts the world of what? Convicts you of what? Sin and of right steps. Righteousness. Right? Will you have moments of failure? Yes. We still live in a fallen world, but we can live a lifestyle of not losing the battle to culture and society and the warnings of John. We can be aware of these and allow God's Spirit to overtake us, which then leads us to the life of Daniel for us this morning and a simple message that we see from his life that shows us his victory over the godless culture of his day. I encourage you to go read for sure the first six chapters of Daniel. Go read them this week as well as going reading all of 1 John. It's super short. You can do it, I promise, right? Read these things this morning, or excuse me, this morning, read them next week, this week. The story of Daniel, it begins with Babylon coming over and literally taking over the Israelite people, right? You've read the story for 70 years. Israel was in captivity from Babylon. But the fascinating thing about Babylon, this is, in fact, if you've ever done any, like, studies in, in, like, world history, you actually study this if you remember it. Babylon was unique. They did not come in and decimate a people. What they did is they subversively came in with their culture and took their best and the brightest from the country they conquered, brought them in, gave them the best food, gave them the best drink, gave them a brand new house, gave them the education that they had never had before in life, in time, trying to ultimately brainwash them from their own culture and literally graft them into their culture. And then once they're grafted into their Babylonian culture, they would then go back to the Israelite people and just share with them all of these things that they had learned because they were the best and the brightest and the smartest and the strongest, and in time, everyone would be brainwashed, and they would become now this Babylonian culture. That was what we find in Daniel. That's what we find in Daniel. Peter Scazzaro says this about uh, Daniel. says, Babylon had one simple goal. 
It was to eliminate Daniel's distinctiveness as a follower of God and absorb him into the values of their culture. Man, is this what you warned your kids about? Who they hung out with? Where they went and what they did? Man, that's what the Babylonian culture is trying to do with Daniel and his friends, right? Trying to come in and literally, in the moment, absorb them into the values of their culture so they would lose their distinctiveness as a follower of God. Do you see that happening today? I do. The values that we celebrate in our culture today, the things that society says and does, like when you watch television Do you disagree with a lot of the lifestyles and the decisions that people are making? When you listen to talk radio and you watch political on either side of the spectrum, do you see where the kingdom of God is not being exalted? We don't, there is no, listen, there is no kingdom value of partisanship in the kingdom. But we embrace it wholly, and then we throw stones from both sides. And there's no Jesus in that. We live in a culture that is trying to cause us to lose our distinctiveness. Personal conviction, you can disagree with me, you can argue, but I have the microphone. When I think about who I am voting for, in any election, I, listen, I recognize the king of all kings, Jesus, who is the Lord over all governments, is the model of what I'm looking for morally and decisions that they're making as a leader of the world. And so when I look to vote, it's super important that Christ-like values are being grabbed hold of and expressed in their life. I don't want to stand before God and say, "Uh, well, I look beyond this because I wanted this. And I can't do that. Why? Because the values of our culture, the values of our society, they don't dictate it. The values of God's kingdom and the values of Scripture define the decisions we make and the steps that we take in life. There's no other option. Kingdom of God and everything else is here. Daniel, I love the things that define his life. We don't really know much about Daniel, to be completely honest. We don't know who his parents were, where he came from. We don't know the ultimate, the actual city that he was born in. We don't know his education. We don't really know much about him. But two things that I'm going to name this morning that, I, that we do know. Number one, these are, these are important traits that we have to embrace. Like these are things that we learn from Daniel and the context of our spiritual life. Number one is resolve. It's resolve. I love in verse 8, when faced with all the trappings of culture, right? Hey, come in. I'm going to give you the best of food, the best of education, the best of all of these things. We are told Daniel resolved in verse 8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. He resolved not to defile himself. He said, I will, I've been brought in and I will partner and I will seek the prosperity of Babylon because I am now here 
That was the word from Jeremiah 29. Seek the prosperity of the city in which you live, for if it prospers, then you too shall prosper. That was the time of Daniel, right? So he's coming in and seeking the prosperity of the city in which he lived, but never defiling himself with the things and the culture that were opposed to his distinctiveness as a follower of God. And he resolved that he would never be defiled. He resolved. It's an important word for today because it speaks to a decision that we make because of our conviction of what is right. Daniel resolved. He made up his mind that no matter what, he was going to stay true to who he was and to who God was in his life. Resolve is a key word for this season for us. It speaks to our responsibility and our spiritual walk. I've already named it. Jesus has done his part. Jesus has died for us. He's given us eternal life. He has given us the spirit. Grace and faith are now present in our life, right? He's done all that part. Now it's our job to say, all right, I'm going to obey. I'm going to obey and keep in step with your spirit. You can either obey or disobey. I can either resolve and walk to what I know is true or unresolved, saying, I know this to be true, but I'm going to walk in the ideas of culture and society and disobedience anyway. And so the word resolve is important. Listen, Jesus has already done his part. Jesus, listen, he's already done his part. First, second Peter 1 says, we have everything we need pertaining to life and to godliness through our knowledge of Jesus. He's done his part, but will we resolve to walk it out? Will we make up our minds to live for Jesus every day? Jesus has done his part. We must resolve to do ours. I love this. It would have been much easier because you know what? Daniel could have been killed. Like, you know the story. You read it. Daniel, at one point in time, like, he literally is like, hey, there's a dream to be interpreted. If we don't interpret it, boys, we're about to be killed along with all the other sorcerers and astrologers in the kingdom because the king is the king. We better figure it out. Jesus, God, he didn't know Jesus yet, but God, help us. And he came and spoke, right? He resolved and said, man, our only hope, our only hope for salvation with the king is God and turning to him in time with him. We resolve to know nothing but God. The second thing. We see with Daniel's intentionality, I'm kind of reading in a little bit into this, so give me grace, you can create your own word. But one thing that we know about Daniel, in fact, it's the one thing that everyone knew. People who were on his side and all the people that were against him is that his relationship with God and his time spent with God was the primary agenda of every day of his life. It was the agenda. In chapter 6, you know the story, it's the whole story of the, the Daniel and the lion's den. They're trying to find something to bring to the king to slander Daniel. And it tells us, I think in verse, I don't know what verse it is, forgive me. It says, they said, this is his word. This is, these are the words of these men. We will never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Do you see the intentionality of Daniel's life to be about the law of God, to be about relationship with God? Everything revolved around God. The only thing they could there's nothing negative we can say about this person except that he's all about the law of his God. 
All about relationship with God. All about his time with God. So let's create the story of King Darius and his pride saying, if anyone bows down in the next 30 days and worship any other God besides you and this idol we built, they'll be killed. You know the story, right? And Daniel, what does he do? He says, well, I have resolved that I worship no other gods before you, Ten Commandments, no other idols. So three times a day, I will still kneel down and I will pray to the God of heaven. Creator God. Like the only way, the only, listen, and I don't know if he did it visibly so everyone could see. I don't know how that worked, right? But these guys, what they know, they knew that Daniel was going and praying to someone, to his God, and not Darius's idol. What does this mean? Well, there's an intentionality. There's an intentionality for Daniel saying, it may cost me my life. It may cost me the lion's den, but I'm going to resolve to be intentional that in my life, nothing else matters. The only way I conquer culture and society and remain distinctive in my relationship with him is I make the primary thing the primary thing. And my primary agenda every day of my life is to be in relationship with Jesus, to breathe him out and to breathe out the things of the culture, to breathe in his presence and breathe out the lies of the enemy, to be with Jesus and allow him to breathe in his thoughts and his vision and his desires and his feelings for me right and his undeniable love and to breathe out everything else that the culture and society tells me is wrong with my God I'm going to be intentional Daniel's life revolved around his ongoing and intentional time of relationship with God listen time and relationship with Jesus it is an intentional choice that we make with our lives like we see in Daniel and it's absolutely necessary For us to live the vital spiritual life. You're not just making space. You're moving everything else of culture and your busyness and your hurriedness and your own self-importance. And you're pushing it out of the way. You are kicking it and throwing it out saying, God, all that matters is you. As we enter a new decade... Just take this moment I'm talking to check your resolve and check your intentionality. There's no guilt associated with this. It's an invitation, right? It's an invitation from Jesus saying, you haven't resolved very well, but this is the moment. Let's resolve. I will empower the resolve, right? That's what we do. We resolve, and then God's Spirit blows into the sail of our resolve to then blow into it and empower us, right? We make that step, and then he shines, And so in this, right, as we make this moment, how are you doing with your resolve and your intentionality? Listen, when we do this, we find ourselves winning with Jesus in life. Again, I ask you the question, and I want you to ask it to yourself, going all the way back to the top, right? Like, what is Jesus saying about your next year? What is he saying about this area of the warnings, What is he saying about the resolve and your intentionality in this? Steve, I might fail. We all do, right? You're going to make some bad decisions. For you who are looking to lose weight this year, you're going to eat some donuts along the way. They're going to tempt you. You're going to give in. Oh, what do you do? Well, I guess my, I guess, I guess the, uh, what's, what's it, the, uh, what's it called you're doing? It's a, huh? The resolution, your diet, right? I guess the diet's out the window now because I've had a donut. 
No, you just pick back up and get a diet again. I'm filled with Jesus. God, I'm sorry. I hop back on the horse and I keep on going with him. Here's a prayer. It's on the screen. Take a picture of it. I want you to pray it. Right, excuse me. I invite you to pray it. This is a prayer that you can pray. This is not some rote prayer. You learn it. Pray it your own way. I think it's really, really powerful. I'm going to read it. We'll give you, I'll leave it up there for a little while. You can just leave it up there, Kathleen, until Aaron starts singing. Lord, I just need to be with you for a long time. Don't you love that? Lord, I just need to be with you for a long time. Right? One thing I've asked of the Lord. This is the thing that I seek, David says, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon his beauty, his majesty, his glory, and then just to meditate on his goodness. Psalm 27. All right? Lord, I just need to be with you for a long time. I can see that there are a lot of things in me that need to change. Just being honest, Lord, I see them. There's a long list, right? The temptations, Steve, the things that Steve named the warnings. Right here, this guy, right? I felt a lot of things need to change. Show me one small step I can take today to begin to build a life around you. Lord, help me to develop an effective plan in my life for paying attention to you, whether I am working, resting, studying, or praying. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, I love that. I love that prayer. I encourage you to pray that in some form or fashion, right? That's all I'm doing. I'm sitting before the Lord. I'm breathing in your acceptance and I'm breathing out rejection, right? God, there's all these things in me that are just wrong. I want to get them out. I just want to you. I want to sit with you just for a long time, right? Like, Steve, I don't get opportunity for long times. Then just have lots of short times. Did you hear that? You can't have one long time. Then just have lots and lots and lots of short times, right? But the Smith Wigglesworth, he said, I never prayed, I never prayed more than 10 minutes, never went 10 minutes without praying, right? If you can't do one long time, just do lots and lots and lots of short times. Just be with him along. Listen, I don't know about you, but I still believe that God is doing this work of this wave that's for vintage and for the church across the world. I believe that God wants to revive Christians that have burned out and are dying, and he wants to revive them back to life. And I believe he wants to revive those who are spiritually dead and bring them back to life. We believe that God wants to bring revival. We believe God wants to bring a movement, right? I don't want to cause the movement. I want God's spirit to cause the movement. And that only occurs as I sit with him for a long time, right? I renounce the things of the world. And I resolve with intentionality to make the things of God priority. And it's the same for all of us. That's the invitation today. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful, super thankful for the cross of Jesus. We wouldn't be here apart from it. God, we are super thankful, Jesus, for the resurrection where, God, you just said, look at my power. And you've said now that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that it now resides in us. Father, we confess that we have not probably been living to the fullness of what you have for us.
And God, we want 2020 to be a massive step towards it, Jesus. God, I want that for each individual here. God, those who suffered with rejection, that they would know that they're known. Those who were dealing with past failures and unmet expectations, they would let those things go this year and move into the place of hearing your voice and keeping in step with your spirit. Those who are walking in darkness, may they see the great light of Jesus, God. For those of us, Lord, who know what to do but have not resolved and been intentional, God, would you help us to resolve with everything inside of us and, God, be intentional in our walk with you, Jesus. We thank you, Father, for your power. God, it's in us. We don't have to succumb, Lord, to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and pride of life, God. You warn us of, their, of them being a trap so we don't fall into them. So warnings are, hey, if, you be, if you're not careful, you'll fall into this trap, but you don't have to. And so, Father, today, would you awaken us, Lord, to the power that we have because of Jesus in us over sin. We don't have to fall into that temptation every day. God, we can be victorious. So, Holy Spirit... Come and do what only you can do. Convict the world, convict us of sin and of righteousness. Lead us into the path everlasting, the path of abundant life. We love you, Jesus. Amen. I invite you to respond as the Lord leads. This morning we'll have Aaron's going to lead us in worship. Encourage us to worship, to stand, to sit. You can come up here to the altar. If there are things this year that you need to lay down at the feet of Jesus, there's always something very powerful about humbling yourself and coming forward to an altar like this to lay it there. Nothing magical about it. It's just powerful. The prophetic statement is saying, God, I don't care who knows. I have things I want to lay down at your feet because I just want you. Come to the altar. The ministry teams will be available over here on both sides to pray for you. We have communion available as we do every Sunday. Just come and celebrate the good news of Jesus once more, that he, well, he died for us, that his power now resides in us because of him. Now I invite you just to give uh, as the Lord leads with your tithe and your offering as an act of worship. As you respond as the Lord leads, please don't leave today without having serious moments with Jesus. And if he's putting here, this is for somebody. There's somebody in this room this morning, God put his finger on a sin and you're trying to talk yourself out of it being God telling you that. And he's, he's saying, no, 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 no. That is me and it's killing you. I'm putting my finger there because I love you. It's going to hurt for a moment. But that's what happens. There's my weight of my presence to show you a broken place so that healing and restoration can come. And so today I, I implore you to surrender to the Lord and say yes to Him. Right, you respond to the Lord, Leela, come back up and pray us out.